welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Pink Floyd. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Hello, yes, I call for Mrs. Floyd from Mr. Floyd. Do you accept the charge from the United States? Well, I wonder why you hung up. Is there supposed to be someone else there besides your wife? Right. Did you literally go backwards or did you jump back to dark side and then... I started with the wall, went backwards to dark side, and then went deeper. Probably all the way back to Amagama. I didn't actually listen to any of the Sid Barrett stuff until I had gotten a Pink Floyd box set. And it was the one that came out, I guess it was 92. Very cool box set and there was some Sid Barrett stuff in there. To me, it sounded like they were trying to sound like Brit pop, like psychedelic pop. I didn't really get into it, but I don't think I gave it much of a chance. I pretty much came on board with The Wall. Because it's an amazing record. It really is. Dead. It still holds up. There's obviously a concept going on. There's a lot of pretension going on. All this. And if you see the movie itself, it's a mindfuck. And maybe too serious for its own good, but Bob Ezrin producing. And then you had Waters and Gilmore in there. Alan Parker doing the movie. And Gerald Scarf with the cartoons. That's a lot of egos and a lot of genius. Somehow they put something together that's kind of cool. If you go and compare that to most bands, rock movies that are not based purely on concert stuff. Right, yeah. It's far superior. The Wall is excellent. It's watchable. It's cool. It doesn't take away from the album to me. And in fact, it kind of fills in a lot of holes. If you know the name Pink Floyd, you know The Wall. And sadly, a lot of those songs have gotten so overplayed by classic rock radio that... It's hard to go back to them and really think about, I mean, how stunning it was to hear Comfortably Numb, you know, for the first time, or the first hundred times. (laughs) 
there's certain music out there, and actually Pink Floyd has two of them, The Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall, where I would give anything to be able to listen to them for the first time again. say something like they hadn't heard one of those albums and they are interested enough to want to i feel really excited for them if young person's really in music i support the hell out of them i i i really i want them to experience what i experienced richard wright during that time period was coked out mm-hmm. and to where um, i think it probably was a surprise years later to gilmore even that he kind of bounced back the way that he did I didn't realize he was in such bad shape. Oh yeah, well part of um, The Wall, when he sings, uh, I got a grand piano to prop up my moral remains. Right. You know, I got a silver spoon on a chain. Mm-hmm. Supposedly those lines are directed at Rick. And then, I don't know if you knew this, but they actually cut him loose. He was fired from Pink Floyd when that album came out. They hired him as a hired hand for the tour. He's fired from his band, but we need you for this tour. And we're going to pay you a salary worked out to his benefit ultimately because he was the only one who made money on it. That's that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I think at some point he realized what he had lost and there was like a cloudy time there. And then when Gilmore decided he was gonna keep the Pink Floyd name going and Rick wasn't back in the band until the division bell, technically. Now did he do any of the writing? on uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason? I don't think there's a single songwriting credit to him. I, and I may be wrong, but I, if there is, it's pretty insignificant. Right, I mean, and I, he obviously played on it, but he was a hired man, a hired gun. He was, he was. Um, I mean, even when you open the album out and you look at the cover inside, it's just a bad 80s pose of Gilmore Mason. Is there any other kind of 80s pose? <laughs>
got faded roots. That's part of the joy of anything that you're that you're into. If you're really into it, sharing it with somebody who could appreciate it. It's better than most any other art form for that because you really have to watch a whole movie, you know, to understand or to get it. Whereas you could turn somebody onto a band song by song. You could do it a little time. You could leave them with something. They could come back to it and go, hmm, I like that. I, I recall hearing Money, you know, for the first time. It's a killer track. Killer bass line, you know, it's part of the reason I want to play bass. When you put on Dark Side of the Moon for the first time from the beginning, which I, I really truly remember doing, and listening to it all the way through, it's it's a complete work. I think that those really great albums, they do always have an anchor song of whatever it is. That was the hit, so I guess that does make it the anchor, but for me, the greatest song on that record is Great Gig in the Sky. The cool story is, the woman they brought in to sing that, they kind of put the track on and said, go for it. And she was like, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, all right, well, this song's about death and mourning and horror and the afterlife, grieving, and they kind of gave her all these emotions, but not much specific. I'm not saying it's one take, but it's not like they spent days on it. Doesn't sound like it. To me, it sounds like one take. I think there's a couple of splits in there. How awesome is that track? 
the greatest song on a record with nothing but great songs. Right. Claire Torrey was the vocalist for the song Great Gig in the Sky. David Gilmore, I have to say that he was really the, the one that directed me. There wasn't a word from anybody else. So David said, would you like me to write out the chord sequence? I said, no, 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 no. Put the red light on and I started singing and did it. Then they said, well, I think we, we'll do another take. And so I did another one. And then David said, I think you could improve upon that. And so I started a third track and in the middle I stopped and I said, look, I really think that you've got enough because it felt, it felt fairly complete. I don't know if you've heard some of the early uh, bootlegs or the Zabriskie Point uh, soundtrack, but it has songs like that in pieces without, you know, like just the piano part, for example, which is gorgeous. Yeah. The box set that came out, the immersion box set for Dark Side of the Moon. There's a whole live concert in there of Dark Side of the Moon just before it was released and it sounds it sounds fairly accurate to what's on the album what's even cooler is i have a bootleg from a year before and they had not even gone into the studio to really do the work oh wow so for example on the run is not the synthesizer you know that cool thing which is you know kind of groundbreaking in and of itself right yeah um it's them kind of appropriating that sound with roger kind of just playing this kind of bass part and them putting pre-dark side sounds you know Mm. feedback and stuff like that it's definitely not better right but it's very very interesting to see where it came from and i think that that kind of thing never happened again after uh, Animals was released to where they really worked stuff before they went in the studio. And I think there's a huge difference. To me, the end of Pink Floyd was when they got to the point that it wasn't four guys working out the songs. I guess it works for some bands, but Pink Floyd needed to sit down and work stuff out. Well, especially at that point, because, you know, we talked about there's that 10-year time frame, and once... They hit 79, it had been more than 10 years. And so they couldn't just go on their instincts the way they had. They couldn't expect that. I, I anticipate what the drummer's gonna play. I anticipate what Nick Mason's going to do here because you're not hanging out anymore. Yeah. You're on your yachts, you got your wives and your families. I mean, that's all normal, natural, and acceptable. And when they're getting together, they're not, they're not getting together for the joy of playing music. They're no. getting together to go to work. Right. I went back from The Wall to Dark Side and then to Wish You Were Here and then to Animals. So that's sort of the period that most people consider like the classic period. Dark Side of the Moon to The Wall. Wish You Were Here to me is as strong as most of those records in there. Wish You Were Here is an excellent, excellent album. Oh, it is. Um, there's some parts in there that are a little hokier. You know, the Welcome to the Machine sounds a little forced. Comparatively, to me, it was the first time they got into sort of that territory that was beyond the more psychedelic roots of what they did and more into just straight prod. This is where it gets kind of creepy. The band is working on Wish You Were Here and this guy comes in the studio, kind of halfway notice him, but they don't know who he is. Heavy dude, bald, and somebody recognizes him and said, that's Sid. It wasn't like a gradual thing. They had lost contact with him for a long time and all of a sudden they saw him. And he wasn't getting any better. Yeah, like a piece of his brain just was gone. If you've ever seen pictures of him, it's 
very disturbing. On YouTube, there are lots of people who had gone to Cambridge and they would secretly videotape him walking down to get the newspaper or whatever. And he just lived in this house and he looks like a middle-aged dude, poorly dressed, something that's not there. In his eyes, like black holes in the sky, like it says in the song. Almost every album since then kind of was about him in some degree. David Gilmour on guitar, Nick Mason on drums, Richard Wright on keyboards, and Roger Waters on bass guitar. This is the music of Pink Floyd. Get it at the very best record store. Columbia Records and Safe Springs you one of the greatest LPs released this year. What do you think of Animals? Love it. That's an album. That is a great album. In fact, I just listened to that uh, last week. Have you ever heard any of the bootlegs of that before it was released? I have not. There are some great recordings. And also, again, because of, I believe, the Wish You Were Here immersion box set has a concert. And they play two of the songs from Animals. titles then. One was called Raving and Drooling, mm -hmm. and the other one's called You Gotta Be Crazy. And so the Raving and Drooling uh, was uh, Sheep, okay. and You Gotta Be Crazy was Dogs. They're working these songs out live before an audience, before the audience is heard. Right. Can you imagine going to see a band, a huge band, and they open with half an hour of music you've never heard before? Problem was that when they did start the tour and get bigger, that's when the audience wasn't having it. Yeah. They were getting these American audiences in these stadiums. You can't get a stadium full of people to listen to brand new music. I don't, I don't think it's possible regardless of who you are. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough sell. And they had people yelling, play money, and all this yeah. crap. When you get 60, 70,000, whatever amount of people, they're not all gonna be Pink Floyd fans. really what ended up building the wall. Right. A lot of those bootlegs during that uh, 77 Animals tour, Roger Waters was just beside himself pissed off at the audience. Recordings of him yelling at them for, you know, not shutting up during the quiet songs, quit setting off fireworks. Oh, for fuck's sake, stop letting off fireworks and shouting and screaming. I'm trying to sing a song. Just all kinds of stuff. And I haven't heard this on any bootlegs, but supposedly, Every night, at some point of the show, he would yell a number out. And the number was how many more shows were left of the tour. Really? Yeah, he was so disgusted. <laughs> there are actual diagrams and drawings he did during this time where he was going to build a giant black wall between him and the audience. It was less the idea of the wall being a personal thing. It was more the idea of it still being a physical thing. Right. You can kind of see the roots of where it was, and it spawned from the fact that he almost didn't want to have to play before people. At some point, you, you may have heard this story, where this kid is, he's, he's tripping or whatever, and he's just fighting his way to the front of the stage, and you know, supposedly Waters can just see him coming, and at some point Waters is like encouraging him to get closer, like, come on, man, come on. The kid climbs up to the front of the stage, and Waters leans over and spits in his face. All right, now that's fucked up. 
Have you not heard that story? I have not heard that story. I knew Roger Waters was a dick, but come on. It's one thing to be annoyed with your audience. It's another thing to loathe your audience. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with the tour. You set up this big thing. You've got a number of dates. You have all these commitments. You can't even adjust. You can't adjust the set list too much. And see, that to me is when really a lot of those big bands got killed. Once they're under that sort of pressure. Right. And that they're, they're really constricted you know by what they can do or can't do right and so they they said that there were many shows during that tour where at the end of the show you know the audience was demanding an encore and they would just play this half-assed crappy blues and they had an extra guitar player on tour with them to fill in the parts uh who was snowy white from uh thin lizzy really gilmore wouldn't even play he would just walk out in the audience and they were all just burned and disgusted and it became, that's when it really became about all those excesses that were in, um, shown in the movie and the wall. Right, okay. Yeah, I think that once once you start building up building up actual contempt for your audience, it's time to stop touring or find something else to do for a while. I don't know for a fact this would be the case, but I think like in the case of a band like, say, Radiohead, I think they intentionally brought the bar down to where they didn't have to keep topping Kid A. Right. They weren't going to get a bunch of people at the shows who just know one album or one song. The audience, they're real fans. Right. They're people who really get it. definitely the biggest selling right the next thing after that was the final cut the record bar invites you to one of atlanta's most exciting musical events tonight at excelsior mill it's a pink floyd listening party here's your chance to take a long first listen to final cut brand new music from roger waters and pink floyd which was the first pink floyd album i bought as a pink floyd fan right in anticipation because it took me a long time to get into the wall not not because I didn't like it, but because I didn't own it. Okay. You know, I always borrowed it from a friend and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, I hate to say it, but uh, I was arrested when I was 11 for stealing it on cassette. <laughs> so I didn't really want to hear it or think about it for a while after that. Yeah, yeah, because you were in a world of shit over <laughs> it. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> and it wasn't like my parents, like, you know, beat me, spanked me, did anything. What they did was they... They were so disappointed. My dad took me to one of those all-night roller skating things, mm -hmm. which I'd normally be very excited to go to, except for this was one weekend just by chance that none of my friends are going to be there. Right. And he basically dropped me off and said, I don't want to see you for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> yes. When you're a kid, that's hard. Yeah, and so I'm there at the roller skating rink, and I mean, it was all night. I think I didn't get picked up till like 8 in the morning or something. It was like the longest night of my life. That was about all I needed to straighten my shit out. So I didn't listen to The Wall like that, but I did go and buy, I bought the final cut the day it was released. Okay. I love that album. 
I actually gave the final cut another listen, and, that, and you know, as much as into Floyd as I was, and as many times as I've seen the Wall movie, I didn't realize that there was a song from the final cut in the movie The Wall. As soon as that song came on, I'm like, oh, that's in the movie. Yeah, when the tigers broke free. Yep. The final cut was really supposed to just be leftover things from the wall. It was going to be called Spare Bricks. And I used to have the single of When the Tigers Broke Free. Uh huh. And on the single, it even says from the upcoming album, Spare Bricks, or, you know, something, whatever it says, but it's not the final cut. Right. So apparently, in putting these songs together, and some of them were definitely outtakes from the wall, Waters decided he could make this full album. Gilmore's thought was well these songs weren't good enough for the other album what what makes them good enough now Wright was not in the band at all did not play on the album and Nick Mason was pretty much like you know it became very much a um, a water solo album and that's really what made me excited for a solo album because I, I think it's a great album boom boom bang bang lie down and of course, the best songs are the tracks that do have killer guitar songs. didn't like it originally but now you've gone back and it's not one of their best records sure it lacks that thing that the wall had no david gilmore singing gilmore's one of the best voices in rock right which is a damn shame yeah but he said he felt like these songs don't mean anything to me you know it was a push before but these songs are are there you know this is words out of your mouth about your experience When you're one of the few to land on your feet, what do you do to make ends meet? Make them mad, make them sad, make them add to and to. I have to go back and, and listen to it a few times. Oh, make them me, oh, make them you. After Final Cut, they pretty much broke up. During that period, there still needs to be something put out. This compilation, it was called Works. It ha- it takes you deeper. It takes you in to see Emily play. Right. It takes you into um, some of the tracks from that Moore era and, you know, mm. Obscured by Clouds and Metal. It also has a song in there called Embryo, which is only available on that album, no other way officially available. The live version that I have bootlegs of, it makes you mad, like, why can't we have that? And I made a mashup, actually, of the studio version with that live version, and it's really cool. I'll drop that in here.
That made me want to go back and check out some of these other things. For example, on that album, they have that song called Several Species of Small Furry Animals Grooving Together in a Cave with a Pick, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> what is this? It makes you interested to go back and check it out. Right. And a friend of mine, by chance, I mentioned that to him, and he goes, oh, yeah, that's on the Amagama album. And he, he didn't know that much about Pink Floyd, so he brought it to me. And that's a weird-ass record. It, and that's it was a lot of noise. I mean, that, that whole era of Pink Floyd, like Amagama up to, uh, what was the one before Dark Side of the Moon? Metal. Metal. That whole era there, it's a lot of really dense, difficult music. Yeah. Um, Hyper at the Gates of Dawn is a Sid Barrett record. He owns the record. It's his thing, and it's it's very unlike the rest of the catalog. And I really like it. I love that record. I, I really like it as a standalone thing to where I don't put it on even thinking of it as a Pink Floyd record. And I love that British psychedelia from that era. And it was recorded, it was being recorded while the Beatles were in the studio working on Sgt. Pepper. You know, they were like next door. So a lot of people think it's derivative, but it wasn't derivative. It, it was really one of those first in that kind of full-blown era. And the really weird thing is that, you know, Pink Floyd had hit singles. Like, See Emily Play is, it was a hit single, which is just mind-blowing that such a weird song, you know, would be a, a, a hit. Anyway, that first album, it, it's very whimsical and everything, but also um, the fact that I was starting to get into it about the time of, you know, going to college and, and my freshman year and stuff and those other bands that I, I mentioned. A lot of those bands were actually into that album, too. I think that um, a lot of the, the bands that I was listening to in college that were of my age, that were, weren't huge rock stars yet, that were, you know, identifiable, or, you know, I can identify with them, but, and they were also in the Pink Floyd and were also going through about the same thing. So they would, they would hear something like Lucifer Sam. Sam, 
kick-ass cover of it so like one of my favorite covers of that uh, Lucifer Sam is by this band called True West and they just they tear it up and it's very 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 simple and it became one of the first songs that the band I started in the dorms that year um, would cover we would cover that and we would cover uh, careful with that axe Eugene Oh, wow. Yeah, we, we would cover all the real psychedelic stuff. That was Amphetamine Library that, that I'll probably talk about later. You're the left side, he's the right side, oh no. That cat's something I can't And then when I got to college also, uh, my bandmate Hunter, he was also on the same journey, maybe a little ahead of me, because he was getting into like the album more. And that, again, not a good place to start for, for the newbie Floyd listener. But I love that record. I love those songs. You know, and they're, 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 there's no concept. I mean, it is a movie soundtrack, but they're all very loosely put together. They also did a uh, soundtrack to Zabriskie Point which is this weird um, hippie well it, it's also sound fragments and such like more is but the I believe the concept is that um, these hippies live in the desert and they have to make love constantly or they get burned to death by the sun that sounds like a typical kind of hippie concept yeah I mean this is like 69 or something yeah they did a couple of movie soundtracks that were to movies that nobody probably has seen or heard since. Right. I don't think I've seen any of these movies. I, I, I haven't seen Zabriskie Point. I haven't seen more. Uh, I haven't seen the, I think it was the Valley that was supposed to be the, the music that came from uh, uh, Obscured by Clouds. Okay. I think that was to a movie called Love Valley. It's a French movie. These are all art films. Do you know who wanted to use Echoes for a movie? Stanley Kubrick wanted Echoes. 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yes. I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan, and I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, um, especially the beginning part. What happened was he wanted Pink Floyd to do that, and uh, they were going to do the movie, or at least that was what he wanted. And so all of those classical pieces he put in the movie were placeholders. They were not supposed to be in the movie. He wanted Pink Floyd music to go in the movie, but he wanted also to give them an idea of this is where the music goes. So Echoes would have been perfect for that. Right. Well, I mean, that was the thing with Kubrick, though. I mean, and he did hire somebody to make a soundtrack to 2001, and then he subsequently didn't use it. Right. And, you know, and then they put out uh, they put out the record of the music that was made for that movie, and it was inspired by uh, 2001, and none of that music was actually used in the what movie. What does it sound like? be honest with you, I haven't heard it. I just heard the story. Hmm. I wonder if it's kind of Pink Floydish. Probably. I'll have I, to go look it up. Yeah, because I know that what happened was the, uh, the person, the composer he had hired to make, uh, make the music for that movie was in the process of making it while Kubrick was editing the film. And he had put, brought in a lot of this classical music 
to kind of set the pace that he wanted uh, in the course of editing. And then he realized by the end of it that he didn't want this new music in there. He just wanted his classical music. And because he was Stanley Kubrick and he could do whatever the hell he wanted, that was that. Was that. Wow, that could have been really cool. You know, especially Echoes at the beginning part. Saucer Full of Secrets is kind of like half of a Sid Barrett album and half of a post-Sid Barrett Lloyd album. Right. I think there's one or two songs that are Sid Barrett songs, but apparently at this point they're having a lot of trouble with them. I mean, I'm sure you know the story. I mean, I, I know that he went crazy, but did he just disappear and they just decide to let him go, or were they waiting for him? No, it got to be, even by their own admission, you know, almost like, first of all, you know when you're young and you can be kind of cruel, and when it's something happening that you, you have no context, you, you've never heard of this, you don't know what's going on, other than your bandmate is really letting you down, and he's really fucking weird, and you just can't relate to him, you can't talk to him, you can't straighten him out, you can't do anything because his mind is blown by so much acid. Yeah, and he, w- he was doing ridiculous amounts of acid from right. what I had heard. I mean, he was doing it daily. So he had completely lost touch with reality. And then they would go on tour and he would do things like just stand there at the microphone and not, not do anything. There was a story about him like where he took a bunch of hair gel, hair cream or hair gel or something, mixed in a bunch of his pills and barbiturates and stuff and just put it all on his head by the time they started the show and i think this was on tv somewhere the lights were melting the stuff into his head and it's kind of running down his face and part of the inspiration for that comfortably numb scene in the back of the limousine oh the melting yeah, scene, yeah. Where, where pink is kind of melting you know all of those things really touch on this the other thing about sid was that he just he just got to where they just couldn't work with him and then they were going to a band practice and they had this time hired Gilmore. So there was, for a very brief period, a five-man Pink Floyd that included Gilmore and Sid Barrett. They had Gilmore. Gilmore's job now wasn't just to add a second guitar, it was to cover for whatever the hell Sid was going to do or not do. So Gilmore learns all of Sid's parts and vocals. And at some point, they were going to a practice and uh, one of the guys said, should we pick up Sid? And they said, nah just went on to practice and that was it yeah and you can't blame them really and it, this was their job too it wasn't their it wasn't just their friend right i mean yeah it wasn't a bunch of buddies you know playing in a band in a bar this was their profession they, yeah, yeah they, they had, had they had they had a name now they had hit albums you know what i mean they had something to lose that they had worked so hard for even though he was the spark it's pretty amazing though you know how many times bands tried to replace a key member and it just falls on its ass but they get david gilmore they got lucky Yes. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, apparently Gilmore had not taught Sid to play guitar, but had been one of his early influences as far as you know teaching him certain chords and how to do certain things. So it, it kind of came back, you know, full circle in a way. But now they were really off. They've lost the lead guy of their band, the face of the band, and everything. Instead of trying to reproduce it or any of that kind of stuff. They just kind of go in this long period, uh, a couple of years, where it was very non-commercial, being experimental. Adam Hart Mother, which was, I think, their first real experiment with an orchestra. It was really impenetrable for me. It was hard to wrap your head around. The opening track, Side One, you know, the Adam Hart Mother Suite, there's no singing, there's no lyrics or anything. There's some voices, I guess. 
Are you familiar with it? I've I've listened to all of the Pink Floyd records at least once. Yeah. And um, a lot of that period, yes, it's very dense. It's and impenetrable is a good word for some of it. Uh, a lot of it I just didn't get, but I I went through that phase where I listened to all of the old Pink Floyd probably about a decade ago. Right, right. Where I actually sat down and tried to listen to all of it, and a lot of it I just didn't get. Sure, sure. And I'm a little older, and I know a little bit more about music. I'd probably go back this week and see if I can listen to some of this stuff. Gorgeous. Summer 68. Gilmore song, Fat Old Son, was one that was just kind of forgotten for a long time, but he brought it back on his last couple of solo tours. A lot of these songs get forgotten because they're on side two and people have a hard enough time getting through side one. has one of those great Gilmore guitar solos. And I'm sure you would know the answer to this. I mean, has Gilmore even played a bad solo? The, the guy's just an amazing player. Mostly, my problem with Momentary Lapse of Reason um, was that it wasn't Pink Floyd. It, 
there was it was a, it was an 80s approximation of Pink Floyd. Yeah, you know, had Gilmore put that out as a solo album, I'd say, yeah, pretty good solo album, dude. You right, know, yeah. at the time, because even at the time, I didn't hate it. Right. But I was a little let down. It was it, it's it's so typically 80s. I mean, just pastel and soulless and slick and gauzy, you know, soft focus. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the what you're using, you're using a bunch of synonyms for weak. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's weak. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's a weak record, and that's why I said they came back with the Division Bell. And Div- Division Bell was, what, um, six six years later? Something like that? It was a while later. It was I, I was kind of thinking it was done and over with already. Right. Uh, but yeah, they came back. I think the reason Division Bell is so much better is, one... The 80s part, I think everybody started to see it for what it was. Right. It was just a very sad time for music. Yeah. The other was that Rick was back in the band. And it was much more of a band. I think there was more of a unity to them, like in the studio and everything. I think that the Division Bell is is a great record. I was blown away by how good it was. And I bought that was a record that I bought the day it came out. I do too. It's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good. It's kind of doing the sort of Pink Floydy thing, but then it has like the backing vocals. So those those girls who do the backing vocals. I wish to God they would retire them from everybody's career. You know, you get too much of a good thing. It's actually quite emotional standing up here with these three guys after all these years. Standing to be counted with the rest of you. Anyway, we're doing this for everyone who's not here. But particularly, of course, for Sid. It was the last time Pink Floyd ever got together as the original four, right. the Live Eight performance. Yes, and the, uh, I thought that whole thing was the whole thing was great, solid. If that was going to be the last time those four were ever going to be on the same stage together, that was the way to end it. See that again? That's what I love. You know, I love that about Bowie. I love that about Pink Floyd. They did put a period at the end of it. You know, they did put something at the end. It's not perfect. It's not on the per- it, but it, it's a nice little thing to have at the end and there's so many bands who never got to do that you know like the Beatles they never got to do one little thing that was warm and that was I'm sure as much a memory for them as anybody else do you think you can tell by this time Sid Barrett had died Rick Wright was dead very shortly thereafter a lot of us myself included were wondering you know is Pink Floyd going to get back together and do oh yeah tour? Everybody, I, I was certain it was going to happen yeah, I, I was too. And uh, what is it? David Gilmore said, uh, you know, how did it feel to play with Roger Waters, kind of like sleeping with the ex-wife? <laughs> well, he also said that, well, even in working in rehearsals for that last thing, I saw some things that kind of reminded me of why it'd be best not to go there again. Well, Roger Waters wanted them to play In the Flesh. It's like, really? You're going to play four songs and that's going to be one of them? Yeah, no, that, that's that's not... They picked the right songs. Yeah. I wish... I wish you were here We're just two lost souls Swimming in a fishbowl Here 
I would love to go back to the time when that came out, to hear it for the first time in the context of the time that it's being played. You know what, we should bring people in who haven't heard the record and who have not ever taken acid. Dose them without them knowing and play the album and just record their reactions. Yeah, we could we could hear the finished product from prison. <laughs> So that's the end of this podcast. We love Pink Floyd. They're one of the most important bands, and they're a really great band because you can dig into them on so many levels. <laughs> this has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. <laughs>